0: Okay. Yeah, and so, um, if we sort of zoom out, like, the specific application, I think, is correct, because James talks about, like, the fish or the rabbit kind of illustration of being trapped by sin. Uh, Proverbs talks about the snare of the adulterous woman and the foolish man, like, all those sorts of things. But if we even take a step back from that and say, what's this picture? It's like, it was pointed out, you know, here's something you're not even anticipating, and God is guarding and protecting you from... Those who are trying to come after you as though you're a helpless animal and they're the the you know, the crafty trapper who's trying to catch you, right? So, okay, good. Um, how about in verse four? What sort of image do we have in verse four? This idea of pinions and wings and all that kind of thing. Well, so like how the mother hen protects her chicks from danger yeah. by covering them literally. Yeah, yeah. And if you want a more I don't know. A more American picture, you could say, a bald eagle. Same thing, same idea, right? No. It's no? Okay. <laughs> yeah, this idea of uh, a bird protecting her, her, her chicks from danger, right? So that wasn't even intentional. Take it as you will uh... Verse 5 and 6, we see words like terror, arrow, pestilence, and destruction. If we were to sum these up, what are they a picture of?
1: Constant threat. Yeah. There's no time when we're not at threat.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so it would be probably, if we were to be very specific about the threat, it would be the threat of death, right? Because although you could be injured by an arrow or, or made sick by pestilence, I think the ultimate fear in all those situations would be that they would lead to death, right? Um, uh, let's see, verse 12 where it says, um, bear you up in their hands with regard to the angels. Some people probably would take this literally, some people potentially would take it figuratively what is it a picture of? Like, what's he basically getting at here in this verse, this phrase? Devin? Yeah, so stumbling, okay. And even if we think back to Isaiah, I think it was chapter, hmm, was it chapter 46? This idea he said, "I'm I'm going to bear you up. I get almost like I'm going to bear you up and I'm going to carry you and I'll be with you from birth to death. I think there's parallel between those like, kind of ideas too. So keep them from stumbling, keep them from falling, keep them from injury, right? Kind of like a hyperbolic <clears throat> statement, in a sense, because it's... Yeah. I mean, going to the extreme, if God wants to protect you, you won't even let your foot fall and touch a stone. Right. Yeah. Yeah, No, I think there is an element of uh, hyperbole like you pointed out, right? Mm-hmm. We'll come back. Yeah, we'll come. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, yeah, no, that's an excellent point. How about verse thirteen, where it talks about treading on the lion and the cobra, or the young lion and the serpent? What's the significance of lion and serpent? To tie into any other imagery throughout Scripture? Yes. It's a picture of danger. Yes. Okay. It's going to keep the danger from hurting us. Okay causing us trouble. Yeah. Why would we be afraid? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Jonathan. Lion and serpent are images that have
1: been used in Scripture to describe Satan.
0: Yeah, and we see those particularly, I think, in the New Testament. I was trying to think back if there was any Old Testament examples of Satan being described as a lion. We see it more often associated with Jesus or the Messiah as the Lion of Judah. Paul? Why is all in the Old Testament uh, associated with the judgment Okay. Okay. All right. So association with judgment and, and these other things as well. Okay. Yeah. So this idea of you know God protecting and, and, and dealing with those things also. Uh, verse 15 is an obvious one when he says he will call upon me. When calling upon me is a picture of what? Maybe one of the one of the girls in the front row. When he says call upon me, call upon God. What's he saying they should do? Just like a short word, we should blank to God. Pray, okay? Good. Uh, and then verse 16, satisfy with long life. Um, it's a little bit of a, of a picture as though long life is something that you take in or enjoy uh, as opposed to just being kind of a fact that you that is, right? And so there's a little bit of a picture there. What are some repeated thoughts throughout this psalm?
1: The name of thought
0: is protection. Okay. Yeah. God protecting his people. Okay. Good. What is another pretty dominant theme throughout here? God is protecting his people because or from evil, evil, and sin, evil, sin, all sorts of things that threaten them, right? And then there's maybe even a third thought, which maybe isn't as clear but think is important, where we say in verse 2 My God, in whom I trust. Uh, Verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Um, And a few other places throughout, there is a degree to which this deliverance, protection, and all of those things are associated with a relationship with God. So I think that's important to sort of narrow the field from God won't let anything bad happen to anything in the whole world, which experientially we know is not true, to At least proverbially or in principle, God will protect his people because they are his people, right? Um, What kind of psalm do we feel like this would be?
1: Song of trust.
0: I think it's a song of trust, yeah. So it's not, it doesn't really have the tone of lament, how long, sorrow, grief. It doesn't have some of the features of wisdom, the righteous versus the wicked. As far as like there's two ways, pick the right one. It's more just expression of trust in God, okay? Paul? Paul? Okay. Um in what part do you see that? Uh, God whom I trust. Uh, God will do this for us. God will protect us. Sure. Know, if the the yeah, so I guess I guess I would say connected with that, um Yeah. There's probably a pretty decent overlap between a praise hymn and a song of trust. So yeah. you know. Yeah. Norma? So, I mean, there's an element of prayer, but there's a sense in which all of the psalms are prayers, too. So, like, being a little bit more specific, we'd say it's an expression of trust in God, I think. So 91, the first uh, prayer of and yeah, no, definitely, yeah. Sandra, did you have something, too? Um, yes. Yes. before Revelation 20. Um, There is that interesting verse when it says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the sense of him being cast out of heaven is judgment. The sense of his plan being thwarted when Jesus rises from the dead is judgment. But as far as the being bound and facing eternal destruction, we don't really see that till the very tail end of Revelation. Um, I guess what I would say with regard to verse 13 is God can protect from actual lions and snakes. But given the way those images are used in the Old Testament and the fact that the Psalms are, there's a lot of symbolism and figurative language in them, I think it is getting at this idea of um, God giving victory over sin and Satan and all those sorts of things. Um, We can talk more about that in a moment. What is, Eric, go ahead.
1: Kind of an offshoot idea. Could the reference to the lion be him protecting his people from his wrath himself? If the lion represents God and the serpent represents Satan, is he protecting his people from his own wrath?: or is that too
0: much? Mm, I have to think about that. I don't know.: <laughs> uh, What, what truths do we see about God? God is a God is faithful, okay. But even more than that, that's emphasized here. I'm not saying God's faithfulness is not visible here, but I think it is maybe more visible. For example, in uh, like when we were looking at Psalm 89, I've made a covenant, I've made these promises, I've preserved my people. I think that emphasizes God's faithfulness more clearly. Yeah, which is not disconnected from his faithfulness. It's connected because he has a relationship with his people. But God is a you know a strong refuge, okay? okay loving, okay? Because okay? Like caring for his people, okay? Um, Eric, his
1: attribute of being the most high is really reinforced by all. Like what's said in chapter one is reinforced by all the rest of the verses underneath of it. Um, because it's, you know, you're going, they're listing off all these different dangers and things, and God is the most high, so his protection is the most perfect, that there's like no exception to that.
0: Yeah, we see in verse 9 too. Yeah, good. Okay, read. Yeah, so this idea of God will help His people powerfully and strength. There's also, I think, a degree of God judging the wicked but preserving the righteous. Like, here's the judgment. Think about uh, Egypt. It fell on the Egyptians but not on God's people Israel. There's a clear um, differentiation between the two. What are some truths about us that we see from this passage or truths about people? We're vulnerable. Yeah, we're vulnerable, Okay.
1: It also, makes me wonder if this place is God almost like a parent over a child. It shows the guy how a parent should be over a child. Because when you're children, you try to protect them. You try to you know, watch over them, and he's watching
0: over us. Okay, so perhaps a picture of a parent as God watches over us. So I guess building on that, we don't have to fear if we're with God. Jonathan? So it needs to be dependent like a child. A child. Okay, dependence, okay, good, yeah. Um what about this idea of relationship? I think it's pretty clear that the reason for it is because there is that relationship. You know, in a parent-child context, the parent protects the child primarily because he's your child, not primarily just because he's a child. Although there's a sense in which you would hope that any parent who sees a child in danger would step in and protect, but there's a unique sort of reason for doing it if it's your child, right? Um, okay. So, let's uh, let's bring some of these ideas together as we kind of walk back through this psalm. When I was little, uh, I think my first acquaintance with this psalm was in the context of uh, my grandpa and his brother going off to fight in respective wars, his older brother in World War II, and then my grandpa when he went over to Korea for the Korean conflict. Um, his grandma, who was... Uh, woman who is characterized by prayer prayed this for him when he went over there. Now, we can argue the application of it as far as whether or not it is a promise that we can claim from God, right? But it's certainly a prayer that we can make to God on behalf of ourselves or someone else, right? For God's protection, as one of His people, those sorts of things. The irony I think for me is My grandpa was not a believer when he went over there. But his mom faithfully prayed for his protection and connection with this psalm and in other ways. And God used his going over there and the people that God brought across his path to bring him to salvation, to bring him back, so that he wanted to become a preacher and a pastor and all those sorts of things. And so, again, it's one of those fascinating things, like we've talked about looking at the life of George Mueller not every last thing in the way that he approached things is necessarily what we would or should do, but we can certainly learn from the example of faith, just like we can learn from an example of prayer and see how God responds to answers and works and all of those sorts of things. When we come to a psalm like Psalm 91, there is a very clear sense of safety. Now, when we look back on the last few years, this is something that people have been very concerned about, even obsessed about in our society, right? Are you safe? Am I safe? Is everyone safe? Right? And the sort of safety that's described here is not the absence of danger. It is God's presence despite danger. And it's a really important distinction because I think the goal that a lot of people in society have is to remove all danger, right? So, I don't know how many of you played, like, we didn't have it so much near our house, but there was family reunion we would go to, and the, the really, really tall play structures, that were made out of wood and had a lot of splinters, and had really long metal slides that got scorching hot in the summer, and you'd go down quick and get off, right? Because they weren't safe or comfortable, particularly. So, the response to that has been to say, let's make it shorter, let's make it out of plastic, let's get rid of all the sharp edges. The goal of that is to accomplish safety by removing all danger. God's goal in Psalm 91 is to accomplish safety by being near His people. This is important because as we go through life, we are going to face danger. We can't avoid it. We can't hide from it. We can't escape it. What we need is a clear sense of relationship with God such that we recognize that if it's not our time to go, to be cast down, to be killed, whatever, there's a very real sense in which we could walk into a hurricane, or a plague ward, or whatever else, and we'll be fine. Now, I'm not saying be stupid, right? So, Friday night, we were driving home, and there was, no, Monday night we were driving home, and there was a tornado warning in the area that we were driving home from. So I think in a situation like that, you should look at the map and say, all right, here's how they guess where it's going, and here's how fast tornadoes move, and here's how fast we're going down the highway, and make some reasonable calculations and assessments of should we go or should we not go, right? I'm not saying ignore all of that. I'm just saying we do not have to fear death and disease and disaster if we are doing exactly what God wants us to do. Because... if it is the time that God has for us to go, nothing's going to prevent that. And if it's not, nothing is going to hasten it. And it's really hard for us to hold those things in tension in our minds, right? Um... But just look at what the passage says. In verse 1, this idea of dwelling in the shelter of the Most High and abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. We were out biking earlier today and it was fascinating how the tree cover was dense enough that we were barely getting any raindrops on us, even though it was raining pretty hard. God is a shelter and those who are in His shadow of a rock, a tree, some strong thing in the middle of a storm, it can be raging all around you, but it doesn't touch you. Right? And then in verse 2, what's the basis of this? My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is where I think we start to fall down on things, this idea of God providing refuge for the righteous from evil, that dwelling with God brings safety, and that God is a refuge for those who trust in him. We want to claim the protection without the actual trust. Because there's a lot of times when we say that we trust God and we don't really. God, I know that you can work out all these situations, but here's me frantically running around to figure it all out on my own. God, I know that you can provide for me in this situation, but here's me, I, I've got I've to solve it all myself. Again, there's this balance, right? You don't drive into the tornado being a storm chaser out of stupidity and say, well, God's got to protect me. But we don't have to cower in fear about every last threat that might come up because God watches over us. And then verses 3 and 4, there's this idea that God shields the righteous from evil. The snare of the trapper, the deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his pinions. Under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. And so again, this image of... And, you know, I'm not saying your picture is wrong, Paul, of the chicken covering the chicks. But I think there's perhaps a sense of majesty that God is strong and majestic and sheltering. And you've got to be either pretty confident of yourself and or pretty foolish to go and like try to steal a baby out of an eagle's nest or a hawk's nest, some really strong bird, right? Um, And so God can protect his people from threats like that, right? So God provides refuge for the righteous from evil. And then the second idea I think we see from verses 5 down through about uh, verse 13 is that God delivers the righteous from evil. Um, which the two ideas are very closely connected, but one is God is the refuge, and the other is the evil, God's gonna deliver you from it, right? So God God is who he is is emphasized more in verses one through four, and then all the evil that threatens us is emphasized more in the second part. So there's not need to fear. You'll not be afraid of the terror by night, the arrow that flies by day, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, the destruction that lays waste at noon, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. There's been a lot of people, I think, like my great-grandmother who prayed verses like this, or people who are going into battle remembered verses like this because that's a very real threat of being shot, being bombed, being destroyed in some way. And perhaps some people saw it more as a promise and either didn't have a relationship with God or did in just all the complexities of, of God's purpose and plan for our lives. But again, it comes back to this basic idea. You cannot die until God is ready for you to do so. Now, the point is not so live dangerously, right? That's not the point. The point is we do not need to be ruled by fear because the worst that can happen to us is that we go home to heaven. Now, I'm just gonna park on this for a second because I think this also needs to be said. This doesn't mean that we need to be obnoxious about it in connection with all the stuff that's gone on with all the pandemic kind of stuff, right? What I am pointing out here is the point that people should walk away with clearly from the conversations that we have is Jesus. Not our assessments of doctors and political figures and government officials and all those sorts of things. I'm not saying they're right, because in a lot of cases they're not. What I am saying is the focus we should always help people to walk away with from is I am ready to meet God because Jesus is powerful and there is a resurrection and there is hope more so than all these other things that I think it's really easy for us to get stuck on because, like anything else, you know, our job is not to evangelize anything but Jesus. Let's say you have a supplement that helps you. Great. I'm not saying you can't talk about that with somebody. But that's not a Christian thing. You have some place that you love to vacation. Great, talk about it with people. But your job is not to recruit people to go there. Your job, my job, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus' job is to evangelize about Jesus and to point to God's power, not to ourselves or some lesser thing that we're excited about. In verse 8, there is a caveat you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, which I think then ties together with verses 5 through 7 that this destruction that is happening all around this person that God is protecting is the recompense of the wicked. Now, Ecclesiastes wrestles with the fact that sometimes the wicked live long and the righteous die young. That's not the emphasis here. The emphasis here is, as a general rule, God rewards the righteous and the wicked end with destruction. And so, there is this warning, I think, inherent in the middle of this section to say, if I am living wickedly, I should not expect that I will live long in the earth, that things will go well, that God will protect me. And so, this I think is where we have to be careful because um, if, uh, if we If we come at it and we say, "Oh, for sure i 'm fine, but we're walking in sin, going our own way, not really living a life pleasing to god i think uh, I think we would do well to examine whether that's really true. I want to touch on another idea, which is sort of this idea of um We, we want to protect our kids, right? We want to keep them from all danger. What's the path to accomplishing that? Go back to what I said at the beginning. It's not to keep everything that's bad away from them. I'm not saying dive headfirst into worldliness. I'm saying we cannot keep everything that's bad away from them. What we must do is point them to the God who can protect them even when we can't. The God who is worth following more than all those other kinds of things. And so instead of having this attitude of, it all is on me, we should have a sense of responsibility for it, but this idea that it's all on me, and I'm always going to be there, and I can always keep everything away, we aren't, we aren't God. We can't do that but God can accomplish those things. There's this idea in verses 9 to 10 that if God is your refuge, you will find deliverance. For you've made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. And again, this is, I think, we have to recognize a principle, not a promise. There are exceptions to this, but the principle is if God is your refuge, you don't need to fear the evil that is around you and then there's this interesting twist if you will interesting because i think that we have come way over here in response to these sorts of things because uh I think it's Colossians warns about controversies about angels. We've seen how various denominations, mostly false ones, have become so obsessed with angels and all those sorts of things that they make it out like, well, you need to have your guardian angel and don't worry about God. As long as you have your guardian angel, everything's fine, whether it be a saint or whether it be an angel or or whatever else. Um, But we have to take the text for what it says. And it says... God will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. There is nothing unbiblical about the concept that God can use His angels as servants and messengers to protect His people from some particular evil. God can also just as easily just speak and make it happen, right? So God doesn't need the angels, but He does use the angels. And so to the extent that He says He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, I don't think that we should try to explain away the verse simply because it's been misused by a lot of different groups. What does that then look like practically? Um, I was thinking about this the other day because I was having a conversation with someone who prayed something like um, God's angels watch over so and so. And it struck me as odd, but in light of this verse, I don't know that it's wrong to pray that. It's also not wrong to just pray more generally and broadly that God would protect someone in a given circumstance. Now, sometimes we'll talk about something like traveling mercies, right? Um, you've probably seen bumper stickers. There's something like, I don't know, God is my insurance. There's, I don't know, like things along that line. I can't remember exactly how it's phrased. Jesus is my co-pilot? Mm, not that one, but but this idea that like, If we just sort of pray a prayer of blessing over the car before we leave on a trip, we won't get into an accident. That kind of idea, right? I don't think that's the point of this, right? The point is God can use a variety of means, including angels, to accomplish the protection that is laid out as being a typical pattern on behalf of his people. Really quickly, let's look at, or I'll at least read it for you. You can turn there if you want in Matthew 5 because this passage is referenced in Jesus' temptations. and I'm sorry, Matthew 4, actually. Matthew 4, verse 5. The devil took him to the holy, place, holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Could Jesus have jumped off the temple and God could have preserved his life? Yes. But Jesus' point was, this is not uh, to be something that is gone out of our way to see, can God actually do it? This is something that in the ordinary course of life, God watches over his people, right? So it's it's not like... It's not like a contingency clause that we're trying to get God to activate. It's just something that is a a normal part of daily life, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And in particular, I think it applies to Jesus from the perspective that he had a very clear sense that until the moment came the Pharisees, the Romans, whoever else could not touch him. Think about all the times in the Gospels it talks about, and they tried to kill him, and he escaped their hands, and they tried to kill him, and he slipped away, and they tried to kill him, but they couldn't find him. Why was that? Because I think there's a very real sense in which Psalm 91 is fulfilled perfectly in the example of Jesus Christ. Um, But, looking also at Jesus' example, That brings us to the point that there is going to come a time when it is God's time for all of us. And that doesn't mean that he stopped protecting us. But like it says in the hymn, Jesus led me all the way. God is with us all the way. He helps us to cross over and to be with him. I think verse 13, again, is this natural enemies. I think to the extent that the Bible uses the lion, the cobra, the lion, and the serpent as images both of Satan's power and of threat and of the curse of sin and all these sorts of things in the prophets. And in the New Testament makes very clear statements about Satan's threats being like a roaring lion wandering about and like a serpent trying to strike, but yet crushed by God and his power. Verse 13, I think, is an echo of Genesis 3.15 and an anticipation of, of what Jesus does at the cross. He crushes the serpent's head, he breaks the lion's teeth, uh, and God gives victory over sin. Um, And then the last little section here is this idea that God protects and delivers the righteous from evil because of their relationship with him. So verse 14, love for God and knowing him leads to deliverance and exaltation. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him, I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. And then this idea of crying out to God leads to his help. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Again, I think there is a degree to which this is fulfilled in the example of Jesus in that uh, Peter talks about the idea of entrusting a soul to a faithful creator who does what's right. We can do the same thing. Now, Verse 16 is perhaps troubling, this idea of long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. In the case of Jesus, from an earthly perspective, he had a relatively short life. But in his exaltation, ascension, rule, all those sorts of things, it extends out into eternity. And so I don't think we should see this huge disconnect between what it says in verse 16 and Jesus' own experience. And I think in verse 15 with regard to Jesus calling out to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He calls out to God and God was with him even in trouble and God rescued him from death and God honored him after that death. And so again, we read a psalm like this and I think we want to take it as we will never die. And what I'm trying to say is the psalm is pointing out this truth. God preserves us all throughout our lives, often in ways that we don't even anticipate or recognize. Things cannot touch us until that point at which God is ready for us to be in his presence. And even when that moment comes, God is with us and preserves us and helps us even in that moment. And so, Psalm 91, I think, is saying this, that we should seek refuge in God. There are a lot of truths in this Psalm that I think would be good for us to sit down and wrestle through. There's discussions that we could have about what exactly this looks like. But I think this idea of seeking refuge in God, I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Verse 14, or verse 9, for you have made the Lord my refuge, the most high your dwelling place. Verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. The emphasis, if we want to see this as having any relevance to our lives, is are you seeking refuge from God? This is not something that just happens for anybody and everybody by default without any seeking and and pursuing after God. So seek refuge in God because he is a strong refuge for his people.